Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, a celebration of the Lord of the Rings film's 20th anniversary. But today, we are convening a secret council to give our reactions to the first proper trailer for The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today, we are going to discuss the Rings of Power trailer that dropped Super Bowl Sunday, as well as all the other promotional material and information that has trickled out in the past few weeks. But first, our spoiler warning, which is specific to this episode. As always, anything from the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit films and books is fair game, as are Tolkien's letters and other works in the Legendarium. I want to add that we may talk about events that will be depicted in the show based on the trailer, so just be warned. I assume you aren't listening to us except to get all those gritty details, but alas. Haven't you ever wondered what else is out there? There's wonders in this world beyond our wandering. Okay, so what we will do is start off with some quick overall reaction thoughts and then work through the trailer roughly shot by shot to see if there's anything specifically to talk about in those moments. And I'll start as the resident baby brain who looks at the three Lord of the Rings films and says, five stars, no notes. (laughs) I like the trailer just fine and am very interested in seeing where the show goes. I'm also going to make a bunch of arguments that I expect Emily to rip apart here, (laughs) so just send my corpse over the Golden Falls of Raros when she's done. (laughs) I'll just say what you already know about me. The three Lord of the Rings films are the most important art to me. I do love the books, like love them a lot, but ultimately it was those three films two decades ago that moved me, that stay in my heart, that made me want to do this podcast. So I am into the connected aesthetic between the new show and the films of yore. And while I know Emily is going to hard disagree with me here, I think this show will resonate with me the closer it hues to the tone and aesthetic of those films that are precious to me. If they are of a piece, there's a good chance I will enjoy it more, which I'm sorry, I just can't help my taste. (laughs) That said, only a handful of shots really had me vibing in tune with the Jackson films. The shot of the antler-adorned hunters, Galadriel on horseback, and the last shot of the two dirty hands being held. Everything else feels a bit too cgi for me, more resembling The Hobbit or, let's say, modern TV and films and less, say, Peter Jackson's seminal trilogy. Everything else basically falls under the category of intriguing to me, but that's mostly because I don't really have specifics or opinions on, you know, what happens in the Second Age or architecture and costuming for the dwarves of Khazad-dûm, just as an example. The trailer clocked in at a minute, and what we saw definitely focused heavily on the spectacle, which is understandable. That's what trailers do, and one way or another, I think the people who love the Lord of the Rings films and were obsessed with Game of Thrones are kind of the target audience here, which has its pluses and minuses, probably more minuses from this podcast point of view, but um, I think it's at least worth singling out. And I do want to add a note that according to uh, Joanna Robinson, who wrote the Vanity Fair first look, um, she did mention that a lot of what we saw in the trailer are stuff that appear very early in the series itself. She has seen the first three episodes, I believe. 
Anyways, when we get to the show itself, I will try to put myself more in that casual fan or movie-only headspace just to provide a little bit of a counterbalance to the lore and adaptation angle Emily will surely bring. (laughs) And speaking of Emily, she's allowed me to talk kindly about this trailer for far too long now, so let's have her light this shit up. I feel like I need, like, villain entrance music. Like, uh-oh, uh, it, it's time for Debbie Downer to arrive uh, on the scene. But but here oh, I man, am. I should, I should try to drop the Nazgul music in right here as you're about to start talking. <laughs> just, just, like, completely cover over everything I'm about to say with the Nazgul shriek. It'll be basically the same thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is, now that I've, like, now that I've said all of that and uh, hyped the this up for me to be super Debbie Downer uh, for this whole episode. I'm going to try and not do that for the start. Um, And instead, I want to talk about um, why I like Tolkien's work, which in case you didn't know, I know I keep this like really well hidden, but I really like Tolkien's work. Um, I'm kind of a fan, something of a fan, a casual fan, I guess you'd say. Um, But really for me, like, I like that Tolkien's work is uh, is a, is a body of writing and a, and a body of thinking that that lets me care, like it lets me care a lot. And um, before I was really into Lord of the Rings, the the like number one thing I was a fan of, um, and and was a fan of for many many years, like fifteen odd years or whatever. Um, and not to say that I'm not anymore, but not to the same extent, was Star Wars. Um, and one of the things that used to drive me absolutely batty about Star Wars is that I would, you know, sit and, you know, chat with friends about the things that were going on in Star Wars. And I'd say, oh, well, you know, doesn't this thing have this implication for uh, like the in-universe lore or whatever? And and people who, you know, maybe rightly or wrongly were getting bored with the conversation would turn around and say, well, you're thinking about it too hard. And the fact of the matter is with Star Wars, when someone tells you that you're thinking about it too hard, they are probably correct. You are probably actually putting more thought into it than a lot of the people involved in it are. And that's not a knock on Star Wars. Like it it, it does not need to be uh, Tolkien's Legendarium to be good. It's still fun and delightful. And there's a lot um, uh, a lot to be uh, taken from Star Wars that, you know, will help you like grow as a person in terms of like uh, your like intellectual and cultural taste. So no knock on that. But you know, if you are spending a lot of time thinking about like the internal politics of, for example, Alderaan or Corellia or whatever, you are probably thinking a lot harder than than what the movies and the books really uh, want you to be doing. Tolkien's Legendarium is basically the opposite of that. Um, nobody can tell you that you are thinking too hard about it because absolutely nobody in the world has thought harder about the Legendarium than J.R.R. Tolkien himself. Um, he has quite a few quotes, uh, lots of them in his letters, where he says every single word that I have committed um, in The Lord of the Rings it has been carefully considered. Um, and beyond that, just showing him up as a massive type A nerd, it also means that when you think very hard about what he is writing, almost all analyses and interpretations are fair game. Everything is up for grabs. If you say, um, it's a, it's a damn shame that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote this, um, because it has this like negative political or social implication. Nobody can turn around and tell you that you're thinking too hard about it, that, that Tolkien wouldn't have had that context for the things that he was writing about because he did think that hard about these things. And the gaps that exist there are gaps that exist because, uh, of, of some sort of like, 
personal or political reflection on Tolkien, um, which is all, all to say, really, um, I like that they engender that level of thought and they, that they engender that level of like care. Um, I can get really, really excited about the Lord of the Rings and and know that at the end of the day, the, the amount of thinking and like um, implications considering that I'm doing is, is basically in line with what Tolkien himself wanted to do and is also basically in line with a massive um, amount of uh, like like academics. Like there are people who have written PhDs, who, who have written books, who have made their entire careers, like in the case of Tom Shippey, who was the uh, Tolkien expert who left uh, this show, uh, The Rings of Power. And, um, you know, it is a it is a body of work that that has uh, so many different uh, methods of, of engaging with it. And that is really exciting for me. Um, and the other thing is, right, like there's an immense depth of like knowledge and cultural awareness inherent to like what J.R. Tolkien wrote. Um, you know, I can sit here and be like, his politics are dog shit. Um, but the very fact that I can sit here and call him a political fucking dumbass while still finding so much of worth and value in what he wrote speaks to like that intellectual and cultural breadth. Um, you know, I can put aside his like awful, embarrassing royalism and still be like pushed intellectually and culturally by what he writes. So I can spend time reading Tolkien or reading people writing about Tolkien and then discover that my understanding of the books will be enriched by going to read, for example, C.S. Lewis, which I will not ever do, or like Montesquieu or Machiavelli or whoever. Um, and the enormity and kind of earnestness of his work means that I feel better for having read it and having thought about it to that extent. I feel like my time isn't being wasted. And I feel in one fashion or another, like I'm challenging myself and learning lots, not just about a fictional world, but about the world I live in. Um, and the necessary sidebar to this, because I did mention Star Wars at the top, is that like George Lucas's original trilogy is also like that to me in a very limited extent in that like uh, the original trilogy is crafted so well and with so much care and thought for certain things, for example, narrative and like what role uh, uh, like certain tropes have in crafting a good narrative, like what kind of role uh, stories can play in our wider culture, like filmmaking, of course, like the 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 filmmaking craftsmanship that goes into the Star Wars original trilogy is something that I love reading about, even though I have real no real background in filmmaking or, or anything like that. Um, and of course, also music and, and music composition, score composition, because who could possibly listen to John Williams' score and, and not want to know more. Um, all that said though, um, I, <laughs> and I'm so sorry, cause this is like a dragged refutation of what you're like, what you just said, Manu, but like, um, I feel like there's an overemphasis on aesthetics over form and function in the world of adaptations. Like, I don't mean necessarily to say that like my way of engaging with Tolkien's works is better than anybody else's. Although obviously I do mean that because I'm a total snob. Um, but I just mean that like when you only focus on like the top most level, the uppermost level of what Tolkien's works are, you're kind of stripping back the heart and soul of it. And um, like, yes, aesthetics are deeply important to what Tolkien writes. Like there is a reason why we get so much description of the clothes that people are wearing, the environments that they're wandering through, the flags, the banners, all of these things. The aesthetics are important, but Tolkien's not trying to, well, wasn't trying to write a book that looked cool. He was trying to write a book that told a really good story and had certain political social arguments within it. And in doing so and making those his first and second priorities, he ended up rather incidentally making a book that is fucking cool. Um, so it kind of does worry me a bit to see like Tolkien's legendary modern down to like a series of tropes and 
like even beyond that kind of to see like critical engagement with Tolkien's work treated as something like only snobby, doozy, douchey, racist assholes like me. Just kidding. Um, but you know what I mean? Like there's this kind of take that like to uh care about Tolkien's work is to be like uh is to take a specific political stance and that political stance is like being in favor of white supremacy uh being kind of an elitist and like uh being in favor of like whatever kind of awful uh like narrative tropes have been telegraphed onto Tolkien in the 70 or so years since Lord of the Rings has been published and the I I know this is going to sound like total bullshit, but I promise you I was really trying to give this show a fair shot. And I like, no, no one's going to believe me. I'm like, fair enough. Like, you don't have to. Uh, I definitely haven't given any indication of it. But like, I really was hoping that the show was going to be good. Um, And it did kind of mean a a lot to me that I went into this with like uh, an open heart uh, and in the end, I've kind of been left feeling a bit like scorned and frustrated. Um, And in large part, it's because of the Vanity Fair article that you mentioned. There's this really immensely frustrating quote from the showrunners um, where uh, in trying to justify why they've condensed all 1000 years of the second age into like a decade long period, they say it's because there's no narrative value to a show that encompasses that much time, that much time being a millennia. Um, And I mean, I guess like that's probably fine. I could probably get on board with that. But what upsets me is the tone they take with Tolkien fans essentially saying Tolkien fans want canon accuracy, but fuck those guys. They don't know how to tell a story. Um, And I don't like necessarily want to sound like a fandom menace freak, but I do want to highlight, as I did at the top, that the Tolkien fandom, quote unquote, isn't just a bunch of sweaty YouTubers. It is an enormous worldwide group that literally includes academics who have dedicated their lives to this, like to the study of this intellectual work. And to like offhandedly dismiss that kind of immense and diverse fandom or like group of fans, I think, because fandom has some weird connotations. Um which does, and I should clarify, have its problems. If you look at the Instagram pages of the various actors who are involved in the show right now, you will see what a fucking cesspit uh, certain elements of this fandom have become or have been for a long time. But they're not the only ones. And there are academics who are good and there are, you know, random Tumblr bloggers who are politically good, who love this body of work even more than these like white supremacist freaks and they don't deserve to be condescended to and treated like they're assholes just because they properly love uh these you know the the books that these are based off of um anyways the second kind of element to this is that um that kind of like the Tolkien fans are assholes for wanting canon accuracy tone that the showrunners have struck is a bit frustrating to me because it says that to care deeply about something, to be invested in a body of work and to be willing to engage critically with it, like for example, to do more than just accept all content as good content is somehow a bad thing. There is like, let's be real here, a good reason why an Amazon show might want to perpetuate a message like that, of course, because literally everything Amazon does is about enforcing overconsumption of increasingly garbage, nutritionally worthless products, whether it's BuzzFeed endorsed single purpose kitchen gadgets that break after a couple uses or TV shows that basically exist to stifle incisive critical thought. This really is the Amazon creative ethos. Moving slowly, thinking carefully, and loving broadly does not improve your profit margins. I'm sorry, but I feel like we would all benefit quite a lot from caring a little more. 
Um, and I also want to note that like it's especially interesting to me that the showrunner's biggest shot across the board uh, at the Tolkien fans so far has been on the point of condensing the second age down and not on the unbelievably loud, racist, fucking horrific side of the fandom that is actively attacking their actors. That to me says that the showrunner's priority is more like squelching earnestness than it is in uh, literally saying anything against white supremacy, which is like, dude, come the fuck on. Let's let's get real here. Yeah, no. Um, obviously, you know, me and Emily might be a little distance on this, but I definitely like think everything here is like very meritous and especially everything about Amazon. Um not like, you know, the Lord of the Rings films were created outside of the capitalist module, uh, mm. but it definitely feels of a different time where there did feel like there was a lot more artistic integrity, whereas now anything out of Amazon or Disney um, definitely just feels like it. this exists because it will help make money or fill a gap in a production schedule or something like that. Um, so we should be honestly interrogating the actual inspiration uh, behind these because sometimes you know art in the era of late capitalism or just capitalism can be hard to really quantify with what is corporate and what is truly something valuable and meaningful um but well not but i don't know if that's a transition i'm looking for um but a couple things i will say just um you know uh, you'll hear this before um, our Lothlorien episodes, but um, in those episodes, Emily dealt me a lot of psychic damage, telling me <laughs> she's going to be turning 24 soon. Um, so I think maybe where some of my concerns aren't as bad is because the two things that have dominated pop culture over the last, let's say, decade or so have been the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Game of Thrones. And I realize for a lot of people, those are two generally bad things or at worst bland things. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about how adaptation work there, because I think there's a lot um, of similarities in terms of how we're looking at it um, and how those things turned out, um, especially because... Um, prior to uh, Game of Thrones coming out. And I was very new to the fandom. Like I got into the books like right before the show started out. But there was, you know, a lot of discussion about the aesthetics of it because um, despite the idea that Game of Thrones is dark and gritty, and it definitely is very much that in terms of theme, um, the actual aesthetics of George Martin's world is very colorful, very fantastical. Most mm. of the castles have like impossible architecture. Most people are ordained in, you know, garish almost colors. Mm. And it's just a much brighter world. And the show, you know, I'm sure some of it's just budget. Some of this wanting to shoot on location, you know, and use like real world castles. It loses basically all of the aesthetic of George Martin's world. And, you know, as everyone makes fun of online, he does take the time to detail what people are wearing, what castles look like, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I like I, I also as much as I want to kind of defend the show from that angle, Game of Thrones, especially those first four seasons where it was really treated as a prestige TV show and not trying to be a big movie, like, it looked great. Everything was on set. Um, CGI was very rarely used, um, really only with, like, say, the dragons or White Walkers, but, like, there wouldn't be a single set or landscape shot that was really CGI-enhanced unless, you know, it was a little later down the production schedule. So, mm. um I guess all I'm really saying is that I think all these concerns are valid, but it's very possible that in the end, um, 
it's still an okay show, I guess. Yeah. Um, no, I think you're right on that. Um, although now that I'm going to say, I think you're right on that um, and try and like be slightly optimistic. I also do want to caveat this for a sec um, because I, I was just reminded of, of something that um, I, I think it is kind of necessary to like address head on before we get further into this. But um, before this show started making headlines for all of the like posters and trailers it was dropping, it was making headlines for like a very different, far worse reason, which is that it kept uh, badly injuring its stunt people and Amazon kept treating its stunt people like absolute garbage. Um, and I just want to go through here uh, the names of some of the people whose careers have been almost ended by the injuries on the show and then uh, spotlight someone who uh, has has done a bit of work on raising the uh, raising attention on this. So uh, Dana Grant, who was a stunt double on, for example, Xena Warrior Princess before coming to the Amazon Lord of the Rings show, suffered a serious head injury that led to a brain aneurysm and an upper spinal injury. Um, Amazon, um, Amazon Studios, the production company, didn't report her injury to the uh, safe working ombudsman in New Zealand, uh, which oversees work safety. Um, then there was Australian stunt woman Alyssa Caldwell, who suffered a serious injury in uh, February and was essentially given $500,000 in hush money by Amazon, who also refused to uh, accept any guilt or culpability in it. And that injury was also not reported to the uh, New Zealand work safe ombudsman. And then there was a uh, stuntman, and this is me like uh, sorry for a slightly humorous aside here but this is a bro this guy has a brilliant surname uh, his name is thomas kiwi uh which is just great uh he left the production in march after uh badly injuring his arm he then went to the press and went into detail about what he sees as the production's mistakes he said it's got the most money and yet the un the way they run it and do things is so unsafe it's not good especially with that budget um, he says that despite the fact that a lot of the stunt people on set repeatedly correct the uh, creative team and the production team on uh, how the proper form for uh, like approaching these uh, dangerous stunts are, they are not interested um, and they are primarily focusing on getting things done and getting them done cheaply instead of getting them done well, which I guess kind of connects to this aesthetics thing that we're talking about. Um, and uh, I would like to also connect it to, and not just because I'm propagandizing against the show, but I would like to connect this to the Alec Baldwin incident um, earlier this year, where um, uh, on a for those who don't know, Alec Baldwin was running a, a, a set as a producer and also starring in a show uh, in a film. And on that set, uh, his uh, the bulk of his creative and technical team walked off set because the production was wildly unsafe. Uh, while the uh, creative and technical team had walked off set. Um, it appears that Alec Baldwin's company, production company, with the approval and consent of Alec Baldwin, uh, hired or brought in scab laborers. Uh, those scab laborers, uh, something went wrong. Uh, someone was culpable in some way. I have to be careful on what I say here so I don't get done for libel. But something happened uh, and uh, someone got shot and killed. Uh, two people got shot, actually. Um, one person got killed, uh, was murdered, rather. Uh, and uh, I want to be clear that it is, it is uh, abundantly obvious to basically anybody who pays attention to this that this would likely not have happened if uh, the production company had uh, paid the amount of money to do the due diligence, had not hired non 
non-union labor because union labor in the entertainment industry in particular, not just not just generally, but especially in the entertainment industry is high quality craftsmanship. You are paying uh, not just because the union are bullies, but because you are paying for the best of the best um, and uh, for this like kind of cheapness, uh, someone someone is dead um, and you can't really put a price on that um and so uh, it worries me to see that like there is the shoddy craftsmanship in the posters and in the trailer and this overemphasis on cgi and then see all of these stunt people being like uh this is an unsafe set and people are getting hurt because that to me says that despite the fact that amazon has earmarked a billion dollars they don't really give a fuck uh, they, they have their billion dollars, uh, they're expecting to get, uh, an ROI or return on investment, uh, probably because they're going to make this look like Game of Thrones. Um, and if they have to mow down a hundred people in the process, then they're going to mow down a hundred people in the process. Uh, so long as Jeff Bezos gets his fucking divorce money. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you hit on something important there also, or at least a tangent can be that. CGI artists also tend to be non-unionized, yeah. or at least in comparison to um, other craftsmen in the film industry. That's why you see so much of the MCU and Star Wars leaning heavily on CGI, even choosing fake CGI versions of older characters instead of just casting new actors, um, because it just ends up being cheaper labor. And I do think it leads to a cheaper output. Um, and I don't think that can be ignored. Uh, the film, uh, the Alec Baldwin one you mentioned, is Rust, just in case anyone wants to look further into that. It's not it's yeah, not very heartlifting to look into, but um, if you are curious about that news item, that's the movie you're looking for. And yeah, I, I don't disagree with any of that. Um, I think there's a million reasons to feel cynical about this. And I really liked what you said earlier about how there's so much emphasis on aesthetic and really not focusing on form and function, especially for, you were talking about form and function in the world of adaptation, but I like to think about it in terms of also production of yep. a movie or TV show. Um, I think like one of the best examples of a singular vision um, of form and function in a movie production is a movie everyone kind of has an opinion on, The Matrix Reloaded, <laughs> um, where uh, the Wachowski sisters actually built like 300 miles of highway um, oh, in the middle of like either the Mexican border or just north of it in America. Um, they got 300 cars that were, you know, supposed to be destroyed for various faults by GM. Um, and then they did their big blow uppy highway set piece, which is really dope. Um, but then all of that scrap material was then turned into affordable housing in Mexico. Nice. Um, I just feel like you don't see any kind of singular vision like that anymore, anywhere in Hollywood or whatever you want to call the entertainment industry these days. Right now, it's what can be the cheapest and quickest way to get something out. Um, I'm definitely colored by the fact that Book of Boba Fett just ended with a giant oh. wet fart um, <laughs> in that regard. Um, it was, it, I don't think I've ever seen anything more exist just for the sake of filling a hole in Disney Plus's schedule. <laughs> um, like, I cannot think of a single reason that piece of property needs to exist. Um, so, um, for all the silver linings I'm trying to look for in the actual content of the show, basically all the ephemera surrounding the show is kind of cursed or yeah. should make you kind of question the quality or what they're sacrificing in order to try and create Game of Thrones. And they're not trying to create Game of Thrones from a 
artistic perspective. They're trying to create it from a commercial perspective, um, something that people will talk about, that people will obsess about, that they can sell Funko Pops over, um, that you know we'll have people <laughs> tweeting about spoilers and blowing up Twitter 8 p.m. on Sunday night, whatever you, however you want to quantify it. When they say they want Game of Thrones, the fact that these are both medieval fantasy stories is yeah. kind of incidental to that. What they're looking for is a giant perpetual going concern of a revenue stream. Um, which is, I think, something we cannot forget uh, when dealing with Amazon. And Amazon as a whole is a very anti-union enterprise. Um, (laughs) So I don't think any of this should surprise us. It is very much top-down how they treat their labor and how they fuck with them. So um, I think that's a very important thing. And I'm actually glad we're talking about this before we even start talking about the trailer properly, um, because I think that is far more important than our screen-by-screen breakdown of what's going to be in the trailer itself. Yeah, I, I guess one of the things for me is like that that you're totally right to hit on um, is is the like kind of increasing insularity of it because because you're right like Boba Fett holy shit um, is is just something that exists to to fill a gap in Disney's schedule but it's also done without any like relationship to anything else that's going on um, and like the you know to to continue relentlessly propagandizing for the Lord of the Rings books but like the reason why I like those books so much is because they are intimately and explicitly connected to the world around them. You know what I mean? Like, like Tolkien set out to write these books because he wanted to write, to create an English national mythos. Uh, and he fucking failed because the English don't have any of that stuff behind them. Uh, they, they really are not a nation in, in any worthwhile sense, but he was trying um, and he was trying to engage with what that means. Um, and you look at the original Star Wars and the original Star Wars may not necessarily have the cleverest or most interesting politics in the world, but it's trying to engage with the world of cinema around it, which is why you get so many influence like so many obvious influences and references to to Japanese cinema because George Lucas is looking at what's going on in the world around him and trying to engage and trying to have some sort of statement of intent or purpose for what he is as an artist uh, and obviously that goes off the rails later but like there is that initial kind of motivation and impetus and and I I don't see that in this Lord of the Rings uh, ring, ring of Power, the Ring of Power uh, TV show. I don't see any willingness or desire or interest in engaging with either the creative or the political or the social world around it. I see uh, a show that wants to be uh, not not like uh, self-sustaining and insular in that they won't have a million and one spinoffs because they absolutely will have a million and one spinoffs, but it doesn't give a shit if it, if it doesn't change anything about the cultural world around us. It doesn't care if it, like what's the, it's the Velvet Underground that they're like, um, not many people listen to the Velvet Underground, but every single person who did went off and made a band. Uh, they have no interest in being that. They have no interest in inspiring, you know, new artists to to create art or, you know, to ask people to think harder and better about the world around them. It, this just this show just obviously does not give a shit. Um, it, it exists, like you say, to make money. Uh, and it, this is going to be incredibly funny that they've sunk a billion dollars into this because as we are rapidly learning, all of the streaming numbers are absolute bullshit. The bubble's going to pop um, and it might pop with this, which would be even funnier. Um, but, you know, they're sinking a billion dollars. They want their ROI uh, and nothing else really matters beyond that, uh, which is just like cheerful and great, I think. <laughs> yeah, it definitely, it definitely doesn't make you feel nice and warm inside. Um, I will say, and maybe I'm making too much out of it, but I do feel some of that sensation you're talking about engaging with um, 
kind of your era or the times. Um, I did feel like in the time, uh, the Lord of the Rings films did also do that, um, mm-hmm. though it was definitely engaging more with where uh, movie making was at that point. And as we've talked about it, it, it had the 90s uh, mentality about <laughs> violence, about agnosticism, um, about the end of history and all that kind of stuff. So um, I do feel like those films, you know, did kind of grapple with it in the same way. Um, that's why I like to call them like an inflection point for cinema, because a lot of what came after uh, was affected by what Lord of the Rings did. And what Lord of the Rings did as a movie trilogy was take everything that kind of came before it and kind of help make a new way um, for creating a big blockbuster um, that doesn't kind of insult your audience. Um, maybe Tolkien fans disagree with that, but um, yeah. I think ultimately what it did in its time was pretty spectacular in its own right. Um, The one, again, I'm not trying to give this show any grace or anything like that, (laughs) but, you know, it is, like you said, there are many ways to approach the legendarium. And maybe, and again, this is pure speculation. Maybe I'm way off and I'm giving these showrunners or writers too much credit, but maybe there is like their inspiration is in like the story. Like they, they think they figured out like a good story that kind of bridges these events and maybe the aesthetics aren't there, but maybe that story is going to be the driving force. Um, and this, this isn't a one-to-one analogy, but I think about Metal Gear Solid and I only mention that so much on this podcast because I know a lot of my Metal Gear listeners listen to this is that there's so many ways to approach Metal Gear Solid, um, the way I do it with my podcast, Podcast Sounds Frontiers, is as a story, like we we analyze it as a narrative, but you know, we also talk about form and function because it's a video game, it's an interactive experience, it's different than a movie, so we have to talk about that. But then elsewhere in the Metal Gear fandom, there's whole people whose entire podcasts or blogs or whatever are just about basically decompiling the code that runs the games oh and God. then figuring out like the technical things about it. Um, So it is possible that maybe these showrunners and writers are Tolkien fans, but like, you know, their like expertise or where they might have an insight is maybe more in telling the story than perhaps maybe the aesthetics or I'm going to stop there because it just sounds like I'm making excuses now. (laughs) Um, But I, but I mean, there might be, there might be something there that perhaps a one minute trailer doesn't really get us to. Um, yeah. is all I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, um, and I'm sure we're going to probably touch on this quite a bit throughout this podcast, but like, uh, there is a checkered history of trailers doing what they are meant to do. Uh, and, uh, as, as we were talking about before, uh, in the days leading up to recording this, uh, <laughs> some trailers are, and, and were heinously bad and led to this, well, not, it didn't lead to, but, but trailed, uh, incredibly good products like namely uh the star wars trailer um, and for people who haven't seen the star wars trailer please god pause now go to youtube watch this absolute train wreck clusterfuck of a trailer um, and it's a garbage trailer uh because star wars was running late it was over budget uh marsha lucas hadn't been through the editing room yet to save the uh absolute uh skip fire that was what george lucas had filmed um, and the studio had no idea what sort of movie they were being given to push out to cinemas uh, nationwide. So you have this like really janky ass kind of clip for clip for clip for clip of uh, A New Hope, then Star Wars. And where the like sound mixing is so bad on it, you can literally hear the echoes from the soundstage because they're just not ready. They've done it to like this kind of weird 
a slow, not at all in the theme classical piece. Uh, there's an overemphasis on like Han Solo. Um, it's all just a mess. And then, the, of course, the iconic Star Wars logo isn't there at all because they have no idea what to do. Um, and uh, despite that trailer looking like absolute garbage, uh, Star Wars ended up being one of the best movies of all time. Uh, so it is totally possible that this trailer uh, was a huge disappointment and the show could be phenomenal like you are absolutely correct to say that you are absolutely correct to keep that optimism like uh, and for the those of us who are massive pessimists and cynics is super important to like keep that in mind that like trailers don't necessarily mean a huge amount um maybe with a billion dollars uh, and access to every single uh artist creative uh you know uh technician in the world amazon theoretically could have come up with something better but you know shit happens maybe this was just rushed and not great and maybe the show itself will be phenomenal you are totally right on that yeah and the last thing i'll say before we get into the trailer about half an hour into our episode <laughs> is that um I'm, I'm meant to do some research about this. Me and Emily talked about it a little is trailers are themselves their own assembly line these days. Um, unless you're a Quentin Tarantino or Paul Thomas Anderson or a handful of others. Often it's just, I feel like a studio or like any studio has their own assigned people who just cut trailers based on what they expect the most mass appeal thing is. Um, so I, I mean, Again, I don't know what that means in relation to talking about this show or this trailer, but it is, it, it's probably cut more for people like me um, mm -hmm. who are perhaps more casual or who, you know, slop up whatever the latest Marvel, you know, movie is um, than it is perhaps maybe the diehard, uh, you know, Tolkien folks. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we'll just keep that in mind. But um, I feel at this point we should probably just start talking about the trailer proper. <laughs> Actually get there. <laughs> yeah. So um, what we're going to do is um, we got the screenshots in our um, show notes. We'll kind of describe them. There's very little narration in the trailer, but what narration there is, I will mention it as we get to it. Um, so we'll we'll just kind of go from there. I'll probably describe it. Um, Emily having more context for what the show might be trying to do, what they're referencing, whether locations or characters, I'll probably have more to say about them in detail. So the trailer opens up with a boat or a ship, sorry, passing under some arches <laughs> and arriving at what appears to be Numenor. I think actually this is confirmed based on what we know from Vanity Fair. And yeah. we get our first line of narration, which I believe is from one of the we're going to call them Hobbit characters just for the sake of simplicity to communicating to you. They're actually Harfoots, which are kind of a Hobbit predecessor. Um, but the first line they says is, have you ever wondered what is out there? And we see a shot of Numenor. It has a tall tower with a fire on top, very similar to Old Town from Game of Thrones. It has a giant man statue, which is, you know, semi-Argonothish, semi the giant knight oh, that stands God, guard right. at Bravos. Yeah, pick that. Yeah. From <laughs> Game of Thrones. And then um, it just has what looks like a shoreside city um, stone made very similar to like Dubrovnik where like King's Landing was filmed. Um, so Emily, thoughts? <laughs> yeah. So um, I reckon this is probably going to be Andania, uh, which is like one of the important port cities of Numenor. Um Oh boy. Uh, right. So, so here's where I'm going to have to like, uh, uh, eat some humble pie, um, humble myself before our good listeners and beg mercy. And um, so there are two things that I'm going to talk about here, uh, all the way through this trailer. Uh, one is going to be what is like 
what is given in canon and uh, what we know from the the books, the the various texts, uh, and the other is going to be what I personally, as someone who spends too much time thinking about this, think is true and and should be true. As far as what is true in canon, uh, all we know about Andani is uh, it is a port city. It is a uh, well, or, or all the things that we know about in canon that are relevant to this trailer is that is a board city so in terms of getting things accurate for the trailer tick if this is andania good they've done it uh in terms of what i think it should look like um based off of you know the the kind of tidbits that tolkien leaves in his various letters or other writings or uh the unfinished tales for example i'm not super impressed um, I'm not super impressed, uh, and uh, I was always going to be a bit of an asshole about Numenor anyways, because I do care a lot about it in the story, and I think it is a really sort of crucial hinge point for The Lord of the Rings uh, as a story. Um, they're making Andony Numenor look like uh, Bravos and King's Landing from, from Game of Thrones, from the TV show, at least I have no idea what they're like in A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, and that makes me kind of sad. Um, and the reason it makes me kind of sad is because the Lord of the Rings, as like a fucking IP, uh, is a guaranteed big hitter. Uh, no matter what you put to, to screen uh, with Lord of the Rings, is pretty much always going to have, uh, you know, sold out theaters. Uh, people are always going to tune in. People are always going to pay attention to it. Given that you have that, given that you have that guarantee, thanks in large part to Peter Jackson's film being such knockouts because that, you know, it was not the case before that anything Lord of the Rings would sell big. Uh, I'll ask Ralph Bakshi, really. Um, but, you know, that is the case that we have now. Lord of the Rings will always do well. Um, now that we know that, why would you not take creative risks? Why would you not look at the fact that J.R.R. Tolkien left incredible drawings of what Numenorean aesthetics looked like? And they were bright. They were bright blues. They were bright heels. They were bright pinks and purples. And they were strange to the Western eye. You know what I mean? Like not to sound too like Orientalist. Well, but it's not even Oriental like in, in that sort of way. They were they were unique. Um, Numenor is meant to be Atlantis. It's meant to be something that is like foreign and alien to the Western eye. It's not meant to look like something that we would instantly recognize. And in this shot already, we've got like you know, Romanesque and Gothic architecture. We have, I mean, that that tower is definitely hard line Gothic architecture. You've got a lot of Romanesque stuff on the side. To be honest, half of this just looks like the the city of Oban uh, here in Scotland, which is like Oban's a great city, nice, lovely place, good, good, good drive to get to. Uh, really pretty uh, sunsets. Uh, not what I want to see in Numenor. Uh, not not really the kind of ballsiness and aesthetic courage that I think something like this deserves. Um, and not just like from a, oh, I want to see things that look fucking weird, but also because uh, how incredible would it have been to get a whole generation of new, like young artists uh, set on creating this universe, this world, and not really limiting them by what uh, the Western eye sees as old timey or normal. <laughs> so there it is. That's my that's my first grumpy grumpy old man take. <laughs> no, that's fair. And I'm so, I I'm sorry. I'm going to just throw out a big digression after our first screenshot we talk about here. But um, and I feel I hate talking about shit like this because it gives too much credence to like the business side or whatever, like the fandom. And I mean, like negative connotation fandom, not like all the very nice toke folks who um, have legitimate <laughs> concerns here. But um, I wonder, and I'm not the only person who's mentioned this. I've seen this discussed elsewhere. If this 
especially this first season or this first show is almost supposed to be an olive branch towards the fans of the film trilogy to kind of be like, and I know this looks more like the Hobbit than the Lord of the Rings films, <laughs> but to kind of be like, no, we're, we're going back to, you know, what the Lord of the Rings look like as a film in a similar way. Like the force awakens went back to like the original star Wars trilogy as an aesthetic and trying to want you to not think about the prequels. Do you think it's possible that there is some view of this? I think it's a cowardly to take that stance, but do you think it is a kind of like a treaty or treatise or treatise with like fans who might feel like after the Hobbit movies, their interest in the Lord of the Rings has sunk beyond, yeah. you know, salvaging. Yeah, let's talk like Numenor. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I think you're like probably right on that. But here's the thing. And here's where I, like you are going to try so hard to be optimistic and happy and like a generally nice person to be around. And I'm going to take that optimism and joy and just be the biggest asshole about it every single time. And um, I don't think this looks like Peter Jackson's films. And you kind of got it at the, at the top. I don't think this looks anything like uh, the the kind of the Dunedain architecture we see in Peter Jackson's films, whether it's in the Northern Kingdom, whether it's Weathertop or whether it's Menace Terrace. Uh, and uh, it's it's basically totally unrecognizable. It, it really does look more <laughs> to me like Game of Thrones. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I bet, well, you know, uh, uh, none of these people care what we think, but like, I wish they hadn't gone out and mentioned Game of Thrones as their like objective before this, because I think I f probably would have been like, yeah, it just looks Euro, just, lo it just looks European really, uh, before that. But now that they've said Game of Thrones, I'm like, ah, fuck, it's all Game of Thrones now. We, we can't escape. Um, but yes, I, I think that is probably what they're going for. I just think that they also, uh, fail in that too, because they're being a bit sloppy about it. Yeah. And I have to defend Game of Thrones a little bit. <laughs> I, I actually think it looked better, or at least for its time and given what they were doing, because Game of Thrones did not start with a billion dollars. Oh, no. Um, and like, I, I'm not, I don't like have a good eye for CGI, but everything in this first shot of Numenor looks fake. Yeah. Whereas in Game of Thrones, at least the right side where it's the actual city with the stone buildings, that would be real in Game of Thrones. That would be Dubrovnik, Croatia, or yeah. any of the other cities, Malta, I believe they shot at. Hmm. Like they would generally do real landscapes and then put in like, oh, we need a giant dude here or, <laughs> you know, the Red Keep or whatever, you know, like whatever actual specific thing that gives it a sense of place in the fantasy world would be added in. But it felt like everything else was real. Whereas yeah. here, not only does the city and everything else look fake, but even the mountain in the background looks fake, Yeah, um, which feels like that's like the anti Lord of the Rings to me. Uh, yeah. When I well, obviously when I say it, I'm thinking more of the films. But to me, like real mountains is what like half the mountains allure of off. the original Lord of the Rings films are. Yeah. Um, yeah. And especially knowing that subsequent seasons of the show are not going to be shooting in New Zealand, but are going to move back to UK. Um, I'm sure maybe you have mountains in the UK. I don't know. We have a couple. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but like it's almost like. Even this might not even last for that long, which makes me worried. Maybe that's why they created it all digitally, because they know they're not going to be able to have a set um, that yeah. carries over from season one or season two. Maybe it's COVID-related, but again, that that really shouldn't be the concern for the output, uh, beyond at least you know keeping people safe, which we've already talked about that they aren't. Yeah. Um, so um, that's where some of the concerns go in, but... Um, I, I, do you have anything else you want to say about this shot before I move on? Well, I was actually, I'm going to do a rare Game of Thrones defense, which is, uh, so the, 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 the castle in the north is Winterfell, right? Mm -hmm. Um, 
I, like, I feel like generally aesthetics wise, uh, just, just generally Game of Thrones was not especially ballsy, but, but Winterfell always stood out to me as like really cool looking architecture. And I was like, that is something that looks like what a fantasy castle should look like to me because it's not like, I, like I live in, I live in Scotland. So we've got more, uh, castles per square foot than anywhere else in the world. So I've seen loads of fucking castles. There's one like down the road for me, uh, it didn't look like any of the castles that I'd seen before in my life. And that was like really cool and exciting. And that's the kind of thing like Game of Thrones did not fail as a TV show because Winterfell looked kind of edgy. Uh, that I feel like should have been the lesson from that, not uh, make it all just look carbon copy. Right. No, I agree. And thank you for coming to Game of Thrones as a fan. <laughs> if anything, I will take you savaging all the Lord of the Rings visual adaptations. If I can get you on board with a little more Game of Thrones. <laughs> so. Um, I'll take what I can get. Um, we'll move on to the second major shot, um, which I think is actually probably the best or one of like the two to three shots I said I specifically like and are somewhat Jackson-y. Um, it's these two hunters is what yeah. it's been called in all the promotional material. Um, and uh, they appear to be wearing giant elk antlers. Um, and they're just wandering across um, an open field, but you get some of that uh, kinetic camera movement that we talk about when we're covering the movies that kind of sweeps over the landscape. So it puts the characters, like it gives them a location. It gives them a physical sense of being somewhere, um, which you don't get with, you know, some of the more CGI shots or uh, some of the other shots we'll see in this trailer. Yep. Um, I am a simple person who is easily amused by uh, weird looking things, uh, weird looking funny things. And getting those antlers out on little people walking around a massive landscape was like 10 out of 10 for the serotonin factor in my brain there. Loved it. <laughs> More of that. Yeah. Honestly, if they just put some narration with these two people walking across the <laughs> landscape from whatever this scene is, I bet you we would have a far more positive reaction yeah. to this trailer. This is the, it's the details, folks. <laughs> yeah. So next up, we have a close-up shot. Well, not a close-up, but a shot that intimately focuses on a character. Um, she appear, She is a Harfoot or a Hobbit. Um, and the various trailer breakdowns I've seen weren't able to consistently attribute which actress this is or actor it is. Um, there are two Hobbit or Harfoot characters that are going to be played by Markella Cabana and Megan Richards. So they're both female Hobbits. Um, and I just basically every teaser breakdown I said attributed one or the other to this uh, person. Um, and I just didn't look any further, so I apologize for that. Mm -hmm. um, I do think she is supposed to give you a little bit of that Frodo look, um, kind of with the soft features, um, the rosy cheeks and the curly, you know, brunettish hair. Um, I'm not a very skilled person at talking about hair and costuming and makeup, so please forgive me. What we do know about this person is that her name is Eleanor, like she has a full hobbity name, but goes by Nori, um, as short for Eleanor, which is if you, you know, read The Hobbit or watch the films, one of the names of the dwarves in Bilbo's company. Um, and then we get the line of narration. Um, what's it called? There's wonders in the world beyond our wondering. I can feel it. Um, and then it kind of, that's when it kind of opens up to the broader trailer. But I think we want to have a little discussion about hobbits here. So um, <laughs> <Do we? laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll start this, I'll start this off so that Emily can react is that um, from the Vanity uh, Fair piece, there's a quote about hobbits. Um, and I'll read that and then allow um, Emily to kind of uh, chime in on it. Um, the quote goes, um, 
One of the very specific things that the texts say is that the hobbits never did anything historic or noteworthy before the Third Age. But really, does it feel like Middle Earth if you don't have hobbits or something like the hobbits? Um, and then the quote goes on to talk about um, the Harfoots as the ancestors to the hobbits, and then how the Harfoot characters are almost going to play out a kind of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead story. Um, huh. But it's supposed to be more at the margins. And um, I don't think we're expecting the hobbits to enter stage right as um, main players in whatever story they're going to tell. But I think they're keeping them around as a kind of touchstone of familiarity to um, the people who love The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So I want to do a couple things here. Two things that are going to make me sound like a huge dick, uh, which is fair enough. And then the other thing, which is uh, slightly nicer. Uh, so the first of these things that's going to make me sound like a dick is the factual accuracy of that is not great. The Harfoots are not the only ancestors that of the hobbits that are around. The stores and the Fallowhides are also kind of kicking about. Uh, the stores would have been quite interesting because uh, of all of the hobbits, they're the ones who stayed farthest away from the Shire for the longest. So at this point, they are basically in the Vales of Anduin, uh, kicking out by the river they are the river folk uh so there's that that's a little bit of like a, oh my god if they're getting that detail wrong that detail that's easily searchable on uh wikipedia even <laughs> then where else are we going that's my one being a dick thing. Uh, my not being a dick thing is uh, I like that setup. Uh, the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead setup. I like that. Um, and actually, the 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 two hobbits finding a wanderer is interesting because it's something that's actually really popular with um, like Tolkien fans. Um, and it's really popular in the context of one character who we've talked about slightly on this podcast before, who is Maglor, son of Feanor. Um, and uh, Maglor uh, is deeply involved in the Oath of Feanor, obviously, is on the hunt for Silmarils. Uh, when uh, his elder brother, Maedhras, casts himself down a volcano uh, with his Silmaril, uh, Maglor casts his Silmaril into the ocean and condemns himself to wandering the shorelines for all eternity, and it's never really clear if he dies. And um, that is obviously a brilliant place for fans to pick up on. Uh, what if Maglor found the hobbits? Uh, what if Maglor wandered along the shorelines, wandered along the river? coast and ended up in uh, Hobbitland, the Shire, Hobbiton. Uh, and it's really popular because it is quite interesting. Like, how do you deal with this high elf, uh, this this ancient elf who's seen uh, and done so many terrible things, um, interacting with the hobbits who are this like uh, kind of like noble innocence trope uh, embodied? Um, and I think that's cool and good. So, so I do have some sort of like um, optimism about where this plot could go. And I think it's really great. And I really have no problem with the hobbits being shown uh, because as they do correctly point out, uh, the hobbits were around. Uh, just because they're not doing anything epic, uh, quote unquote epic, doesn't mean they're not kicking. Um, and sometimes those simple stories are really the most interesting and meaningful ones. Um, the second thing that I'm going to say that it probably makes me a dick is uh, is that I don't like this uh, whole, but really, does it feel like Middle Earth if you don't have hobbits in it? Yes. Like, yes, it does. Uh, and, and the reason it does is because uh, the... Yes, the most popular books are The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, which feature The Hobbits, but Middle-earth and, and Tolkien's Legendarium and the works that, that include Middle-earth as, as, as a setting or as a reference point are so much more than The Hobbits. They really are. And that is part of the brilliance of this body of work is that you can move beyond the story of Frodo and Bilbo and Sam and Pippin and Merry, and you can move beyond that and still have 
thousands of pages and years of work to be interested in. And it still feels like it's one part of part of one concerted world because it is part of one concerted world. And you don't lose anything for not having reference to the hobbits. I mean, the Silmarillion, like, yes, people like to donk on it as being impenetrable. I increasingly feel like it isn't. You know, the Silmarillion never once makes reference. Well, maybe it does, but it doesn't really deal in any great deal depth with the hobbits. And it still is a book that is concerned in parts with Middle Earth, and it still feels like it's part of Tolkien's Legendarium. There is no denying that it is a, a like an in- inseparable part of it. So I don't like this argument that you know, oh well, are these IPs really marketable if they don't have this like you know nostalgia bait wink to the things that came before? They can feel like they the Middle Earth can feel like Middle Earth without the hobbits in it if you do Middle Earth right. If you want to take the Hobbit shortcut, then yeah, fine. But like, I don't like this implication that it's only Middle Earth if if there's like <laughs> hobbits involved because I just I just think that's bullshit. I think that's not true. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I I disagree a little bit insofar <laughs> as that if anyone's major touchstone is the Lord of the Rings films, um, it you know, there's a reason concerning Hobbits is my number one Spotify tract <laughs> um, every year, and I think there is. I we talk about Lord of the Rings like with two people with, you know, extreme brain poisoning and we spend (laughs) multiple hours of multiple days of multiple years thinking about this stuff from different angles, but we still, you know, we dedicate that much time to it. But I think the general popular consensus around the films is that, you know, they're even with all, you know, that's depicted, they're generally kind of like heartwarming. They're things that people usually watch to feel good. Um, They usually associate with holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I think a lot of that emotion within the story itself manifest mostly with the hobbits, with the bonds that Frodo and Sam and Mary and Pippin have to each other. Um, So I can see why they wanted to include the hobbits. I don't love the quote either because I I don't necessarily need, you know, hobbits to make it feel like Middle Earth. Um, In fact, you know, the hobbits generally are not my favorite part of Middle Earth, even (laughs) though I would absolutely die for, you know, Elijah Wood's Frodo and Sean Astin's uh, Sam Gamgee and all that stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, I can go both ways, but I think this again is where um, it's they're definitely speaking more to not us than, mm. you know, perhaps we'd like. Um, yeah, but that's a defense. I... Um, the other thing I'll say, and maybe you might know more about this, is given that the show is um, is only really allowed to pull from the Lord of the Rings book and its appendices, I wonder if there's just, they were able to make do with some of the Hobbit stuff that's in there because there is a lot of stuff in that book specifically. Um, if that gave them a little more material to play with um, from the source material that they're actually allowed to use for the show. Um, yes, I think you are right. Like there's a lot in the appendices that does deal with the Hobbits and and that is that is the I, I would say probably the the correct assumption there. And I do want to say though that I am very interested um in what the actual terms of their copyright agreement are because there is a, a potentially there's a character who shows up in this trailer who is not mentioned uh, at least as far as I can remember off the top of my head in the Lord of the Rings appendices and that is uh Finrod Filigand uh, brother of Gladriel uh at, you know one time high king of the Noldor appears to show up in the trailer um and uh 
as far as I can wear, uh, remember, and this is this is really off the top of my head, so I could be totally wrong. He is not mentioned in the Lord of the Rings appendices. He only gets his day out in uh, the Silmarillion, um, and that to me kind of set off the 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 alarm bells of maybe they've got more than they originally said they did, or maybe they've finagled their way into a slightly more favorable to them uh, deal with the Tolkien estate. Because if Finrod showing up, I think that's kind of kicking the door open to uh, a lot of other things that are not in the appendices. That's great. Yeah, I didn't. I did not know that. So uh, we'll move on. Uh, the next thing we get is actually a title card that says "Before the King." Um, there's a couple title cards. Basically, it's all of them are just reiterating that this takes place a long time before the events of The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. Um, I don't think there's much more insight from <laughs> other than that. Um, so the next shot we get is a waterfall landscape shot kind of rotating around the waterfall, but you see gray mountains in the distance and gray mountains. I mean, as in they're physically colored gray, I believe they're actual gray mountains or mountains called the gray mountains. Am I wrong? Mm-hmm. Yep. They're um, there in Mithrin. Um, and I'll say this shot does not feel Jackson to me. It's just very CGI. It was, it was whatever enough that I didn't even bother grabbing a screen clip for um, the show notes. Um, did you have any thoughts on what this waterfall is or do you care? Nah, I just, yeah, shrug. <laughs> yeah. Um, the next, um, I, the next shot is uh, Galadriel mountain climbing in what is supposed to be the forward wait, which, or for, I don't know how to say that. Yeah, uh, no, you got it. You're, you're okay, correct. Forward wait, which is, um, the, perhaps the northernmost mountain point or mountain range we know of in middle earth yeah. um and uh they pretty much lifted the shot it seems like right <laughs> out of game of thrones season three episode six the climb um that's the one where john snow egret and Tormund's giant's bane climb the wall to get to the southern side of it um this shot sounds like feels a joke very that sounds much- like a punchline to a joke <laughs> <laughs> These three climb a wall and at the top, you know. Uh, But so, yeah, it's very similar. Uh, I mean, this shot looks maybe a little, I I don't know how to compare the shots, but it's basically Galadriel. She's in uh, rough looking gray robes kind of stuff. Emily's a costuming expert. I'll let her talk about it because I know she has some comments on the costume. And she (laughs) looks to be using some kind of pick or dagger to climb up. Um, We don't really have any context beyond that, but I know Emily has thoughts, so I'll let her speak now. Yeah, so she's got her like little epaulette kind of metal things on her shoulders are the star of Feanor, uh, which is, I'm taking my deep breath. Uh, we'll get into why uh, Feanor and Galadriel are not a match made in heaven in, I think, an episode or two from now in Lothorian. Uh, suffice it to say, uh, Galadriel is not a Feanorian. Uh, she is very much not one of them. Uh, and so it surprises me to see the most clear and blatant emblem of Feanor upon Galadriel's person. Uh, and unless she is climbing this mountain, uh, dressed up like a poor Feanorian because she's making some weird ironic point, uh, don't really see why it should be there. Um, I was I was having this argument with someone online uh, because the Star of Feanor also shows up in The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, uh, on a banner that's behind Arwen and near Elrond uh, at Aragorn's Corp coronation um, and someone was like oh well you know Elrond's not really a Feanorian so why does he have the star and Elrond was <laughs> raised by two of Feanor's sons uh, I would say I, I would 
I would say it's not uh, controversial to say that he probably doesn't have a great relationship to Feyenoord, but I think uh, you could probably argue uh, a, a potentially convincing argument for why Elrond might have that uh, uh, emblem on him. Galadriel has really no reason to have it, um, and I know they're probably just picking and choosing things that look vaguely Lord of the Ringsy, vaguely Tolkien has to put, but it's just one of these things where I'm like... The only people who are going to recognize the Star of Feanor are the people who know what the Star of Feanor is. So by putting it in, you either need to evoke something that makes sense to the people who recognize it, or you need to not put it in at all. Um, and uh, they've chosen to put it in, and they've chosen to put it on Gladriel, and it just leaves me with a big sort of, well, what the fuck? Why? Um, but my other kind of worry about this is, uh, uh, I don't know why Gladriel is doing shit like this. And I don't know that I could ever really be convinced of a story where Gladriel is climbing ice walls by herself. Uh, not because I think all women should stay home and be barefoot and pregnant all the time, but because Galadriel is effectively a princess of the Noldor, she is hoity-toity, she is an aristocrat, she is a bit of an asshole at the best of times. She does not do her own dirty work. Uh, she really doesn't. Uh, and, and so I don't really see this like rugged individualist Aragorn-esque Gladriel as something that is recognizable to the character of Gladriel. Uh, I'm, maybe I can be convinced, but I'm just like, she's a rich aristocrat. <laughs> like she doesn't do this shit for herself. She just doesn't. So why is this happening here? Um, maybe they'll convince me, but I, yeah, I'm currently not convinced. And I'm also currently slightly hacked off at the Star of Fainar. But there it is. Uh, uh, what, the three PO quote: uh, "We're we're made to suffer. It seems to be our lot in life." Is me with no hint of irony or self awareness about this trailer right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe uh, grasping to make sense of this. Um, it is possible she isn't climbing. Um, just because of the way she's holding her knife, uh, it doesn't look like she has quite mountain climbing gear on. So perhaps she was somewhere and was thrown or. Mm. Who knows? I, again, I don't think that she makes sense, dreaming. but it's just one of those things where um, what exactly she's doing, we can't quite tell other than hanging on. Um, so, yeah. um, but I, I mean, I agree. I wouldn't, I, I, what, what they're going to do, and I, we might as well just talk about it, is that she is probably going to be warrior-ified. Yeah. Um, she's going to get the Arwen treatment um, that we got in, uh, what's it called? Uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, I feel like. Um, yeah. And it, I think ultimately, I guess the way I'll look at it is, you know, I know you feel strongly about the action. I think ultimately all those like spectacle and action set pieces are like the dessert. Um, and if the connective tissue with the character scenes and the dialogue actually works, then I'll be way more forgiving of this. But if this is like yeah. why I'm supposed to be into Galadriel, then it, I'm going to you know, lose the show or, you know, it'll lose me rather, I think is what I'm getting at. Yeah. No, I feel like that's actually a really good point. And I feel like I should also probably clarify this. Like, like the reason I'm being so cynical and harsh on this show already is because I, uh, because I'm a cynical and harsh person, but also because I've come to expect that we don't really get good, uh, good, good, good writing. We don't necessarily get good dialogue. We don't get good character development and we don't get creative or interesting plots in a lot of, uh, modern entertainment. Uh, and I'm really by modern, I mean like the last five to 10 years. Uh, and so given that I kind of come to this with the assumption that those three core elements of a story aren't going to be there, um, everything else visually, aesthetically, everything else would need to be perfect for me to like, be like, this is a probably good thing. And so 
now that I, I am kind of assuming that those three things aren't going to be there and also saying that the rest of those other side kind of bits aren't going to be there either. I'm like, like, what really is this show going to be doing for us? Right. Um, and it's also, I guess, worth pointing out that unlike the Lord of the Rings films, there's not going to be a whole bunch of dialogue that uh, the showrunners can just lift and put into the visual adaptation, uh, which definitely, you know, helps lighten the load. Even, you know, as we've mentioned a couple of times, they might have done it and stripped it of its context. It's still nice to have the actual dialogue that Tolkien wrote because um, that helps it, you know, feel like what it is trying to accomplish and be an adaptation of his work. Um, yeah. So now we're trusting the Amazon showrunners to come up with Tolkien-esque dialogue, which, yeah, <laughs> man, you know, the, the HBO showrunners could not come up with George Martin-esque dialogue once he stopped uh, contributing to the show. And it got real bad. They literally said the words bad pussy um, oh, <laughs> on Christ. Game of Thrones in season five once George Martin was no longer involved. So um, Fucking hell. uphill battle, uphill battle. Fucking hell. Oh, my God. <laughs> Next, we get the title card uh, before the Fellowship, which, again, I think just is trying to place this, you know, before the events of um, The Lord of the Rings. Um, here we see a raft in a storm at night um, and on the raft. And my eyes were not good enough um, to, like, really see the second person. But there's two people on here. It's uh, Galadriel and a new character named Halbrand, who I believe is a human character. But we don't know much else beyond that. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, at least, um, do you have some idea just where this is in Galadriel's timeline? Is this her, um, quote unquote, floating on to Middle Earth proper? Or no. is this some adventure that's probably just going to be made up for the story? Yeah, it's almost certainly made up. So Galadriel comes to Middle Earth via the Helcaraxa, which is a, like an icy hellhole in the far north um, that uh, effectively connects uh, Amon to Beleriand slash Middle Earth. Uh, so she's she's done that. She's been, been here. This is the time in her life, the second age, when she is getting married to Celeborn and they are establishing their uh, kingdom in uh, Lothlorien uh, and uh, Galadriel is pay playing a uh, uh, political games with her nephew, Celebrimber and Eregion. She is uh, trying to make herself a little empire. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I don't even know. I just don't know. No idea. Um, you mentioned she arrived in Middle Earth, like uh, traversing some kind of icy plane. Could the shall we talked about before that have anything to do with it? Or um, theoretically, so okay, so so theoretically, no. Because it is dealt with in the Silmarillion. The crossing of the Helcaraxa is a big part of the story of the Silmarils. Um, but like I said before, I also thought that like Finrod would be off limits. And it appears that he's there. Uh, so all bets are off, really. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, good to know. Good to know. Uh, that's that's an earnest question. I really had no idea. Um, so anyways, moving on. The next uh, shot we get is of another created for the show character named Aaron Deer. He is a Sylvan elf. Um, I'm sorry I did not grab the actor's name or I don't have it handy, but he is a black actor. Um, and we get a shot first of an arrow coming in towards uh, Aaron Deer or may perhaps a fallen comrade that's right next to him. And he uh, plucks the arrow out of the air and then knocks it to his own bow. And then we get a close up of him shooting. Um, the one comment I have before giving it over to Emily is we get a close up of his face as he's like, you know, pulling the bowstring back and it's just 
dark. Um, mm. And I specifically am thinking about um, Helm's Deep and like the shots we get of Legolas. And I understand that Helm's Deep, you know, diegetically on the set, they had torches um, providing some versions of natural light. But just go watch any of the archers in Elm's Deep, and you can like clearly see them. <laughs> um, whereas this is just kind of blue, gray, black, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm very interested in this character. Um, perhaps you know some costuming and hair choices aside, mm. but it just I'm thinking about how when we're talking about trying to make it feel like Jackson's movies, Jackson had several versions of this kind of close-up shot of someone shooting an arrow, and mm-hmm. none of them look like this. You know? Um, yeah. So that's kind of where my complaint is. But I am at least interested in the character. And I will say, like, ripping an arrow out of the air mid-flight and putting it to your own bow is something kind of... Like, if Legolas did that, I would talk about it nonstop on the normal (laughs) podcast. So I'm at least open to that idea of coolness. Yeah. So the actor is Ismael Cruz Cordova. And he is in... uh, He hasn't had a hugely prolific career. Um, I think the only thing I've seen him in is the Mary Queen of Scots movie that came out a couple years back with uh, Sarah Sharonan as uh, Mary Stewart and uh, Margot Robbie as Elizabeth I. Uh, And um, he played David Rizzio. uh, and, And was quite good uh definitely one of the more memorable performances which is a hard thing to do in a film where uh david tennant is playing uh john knox uh for a variety of reasons but yeah he's pretty good uh <laughs> i'm uh interested in where they're going to take this character because he is also going to be involved in this like weird elf human relationship and i like i'm going to censor myself on this here and and not say anything that could theoretically uh kick open a pandora's box but i i am skeptical intensely skeptical of this uh elf human relationship that they've added in uh and uh we'll try and write something so that i can spend more time thinking about the words that i'm going to say and not uh you know uh stick my foot in it and yeah he seems fine Uh, i'm annoyed that they've gone with uh the short-haired elves not just because i'm like oh all elves must have long hair but because i think uh is indicative of their kind of overall approach to pretty much everything in this film particularly everything that has to do with any sort of like non-white actors which is to try and make them look as white as possible uh and i think uh you know shaving his hair off uh same with uh disa the the dwarven princess who we will talk about later like straightening her hair before they put it up in uh the hairstyle they've done i think all of this is kind of part of like effectively whitewashing uh non-white actors so they can be like look we cast non-white actors uh and then uh did what we could to kind of assimilate them into like a very white supremacist uh standard of beauty but you know that is uh that is me being a bit insane so uh people are not obliged to take that position (laughs) oh no that's that's amazon's twist to uh disney making every queer character a uh cop um it's like hey we're we're, we're gonna cast for diversity but they're just gonna be a cop um so you know Dis- disney does cops amazon does whitewashed aesthetics um so there's that um, <laughs> we're so lucky <laughs> we, we, we just get the best <laughs> uh, so the next we get another title card i believe this is the last title card before the actual title of the show it says before the ring this is the only title card that perhaps has any significant implication uh, for the story in terms of timing, just because the ring was created in the Second Age, and it's heavily believed that Sauron or his elf avatar, Anatar, uh, didn't realize that rhymes with avatar, <laughs> um, does uh, forge the ring in the Second Age and is believed to be a part of the show's 
story at some point. I don't think we're going to quite get to there in the first season, or at least I wouldn't anticipate it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe that is something they do plan to depict at some point over the course of this show. The next shot is just a comet streaking overhead. There might have been a character in frame looking at it, but I wasn't able to catch them. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea what this is. I have ideas, but they would be crackpots that I'm sure the legendarium itself would uh, dispel. <laughs> um, so I'll just hand it over to Emily. Um, do you have any th- ideas on what this might be? Um, I have some suspicions. So so theoretically, it could be Arendil's star, so it wouldn't be a comet then. Uh, and Arendil is a uh, uh, father to uh, Arond, uh, who uh, went across the uh, sea from... Uh, uh, well, was a mariner who went and sought out the the Valar for the, for help in the the war against Morgoth, and was rewarded for his uh, incredible duty uh, by by basically having all of his children powered up, uh, and uh, was also later made a star. Erendil uh, is quite interesting. He's like quite an important cos- cosmological figure and uh, the legendarium because he literally does become like effectively the North Star. Uh, so it theoretically, could be that. I think the character that they show after might be Gilgalad, uh, who is the high king of the uh well the, the high king of the elves at, the, at this point in uh in the history of middle earth he's the king in linden he's the high king of uh the noldor uh, that theoretically could have been him uh, it also may be a sort of reference to um arian and uh uh, oh my god, I've totally forgotten the Meyer's name who pushes the moon. Uh, anyways, in Tolkien's Legendarium, uh, the moon and the sun are pushed by the uh, Meyer, uh, to Meyer. Arian does the sun, which is Anor, and I cannot for the life of me remember. Uh, it's like it's like Isilion or something, Isilme or something like that, who pushes the moon. Uh, it could be a reference to that, but beyond that, I, I, I'm also talking out my ass here, really. Yeah, and just just to add some clarification, uh, I called it a comet. I don't think there's any confirmation that it is specifically a comet. Uh, But that's just like the imagery that it evoked in my head. And it's probably, again, because of A Song of Ice and Fire. Because if you remember from the second season of Game of Thrones, there's a red comet that streaks across the sky. Um, So I just kind of had that fantasy imagery in my head. But what it actually is... um, I know a lot of people kind of want to think it maybe it's the arrival of the Maiar, but they do not arrive at this point or no. in the second age. So yeah. um, ju- just to kind of throw that out there, because I think that is something that some people have been postulating. But given how this might not hew anywhere towards the legendarium that Tolkien laid out, I can't say definitively it isn't either. Um, who knows what the fuck they're doing? <laughs> Um, and next, as Emily kind of nicely kind of segued into, is a shot of Gilgalad. Um, he appears to be on some kind of platform uh, wearing some cheap-looking robes that I'm sure Emily mm. will have something to say about. Um, I don't think there's much to garner here other than this location, this platform he's on, might be shown later on in the trailer as well um, in daytime with other people around. But I don't really have anything else to say about that. We have talked about Gilgalad a little bit on the podcast proper. Um, but anyways, Emily, your turn. Yeah, looks like shit. Looks like shit. Uh, Party City costume. Uh, the craftsmanship on it is very bad. Uh, the metal, the apparent metal working on it looks grim. Uh, you can see seams all over the place. The like wearing the the weathering looks garbage. Uh, looks like it was done by high schoolers. Uh, not impressed. Uh, 
yeah, don't really have much else to say. I'm not like particularly enthused by Gilgalad as a character, so I'm not like, oh no, they're putting Gilgalad in this. My poor favorite character. Uh, you could you can pretty much portray Gilgalad however you like, and I'll be like, yeah, fair enough. That's that's pretty much who he is. He's got no real characterization in the book, so fair fucks. Um, yeah. I'm just upset here because I think like this is another sign of like the poor craftsmanship, and like I can complain constantly about like the aesthetics of uh, Peter Jackson's films and disagree with them vehemently. But what I can't ever really do is complain about the craftsmanship because uh, it is not in any way a lazy film. There's a tremendous amount of work and thought uh that went into uh making every single costume and every single shot of the peter jackson films uh at least the lord of the rings ones and that is not at all reflected here in this goofy ass costume yeah no i'm a big fan of uh peter jackson's adaptation of gilgalad which was to not even mention him at all (laughs) correct correct boring motherfucker Uh, all right, so now um, the shots start coming a little bit faster. Um, I'll start listing listing them out. Um, Emily, just feel free to stop me if there's one you want to talk about. Um, some of these are just like straight up action shots, so there might not be a whole lot to discuss. Um, we have Galadriel leading a charge on a horse. It looks like she's you know she's on a white horse, which again is evoking that Arwen um, sense. But it appears the other riders with her are with her um like and she's leading them again i think it's the you know an action heroification of galadriel um next we get someone encountering i think it's it's a troll i'm pretty sure um probably a cave troll but other than that i have nothing on the next scene i don't know if you have anything no. <laughs> no um we get another title card it says a new legend begins this fall uh which just makes me think of like the 1993 movie legends of the fall um, <laughs> it has no relation whatsoever to this podcast or what we're talking about but i see those <laughs> words together and i think that um next we get a golden forest overlooking a waterfall and this is the shot that is looks to be on the same location that the gilgalad Gilgalad shot we mentioned is as well um in this shot and i don't have in the show notes i'm sorry emily um but it looks like there is a group of elves several in white robes and then possibly gilgalad i think there was someone in the golden look um sitting there talking convening a council not really sure what's going on um but yeah there's that um Next comes a shot of Owen Arthur playing Durin the Fourth, um, but he's not really doing anything. It's just a shot of him. Um, and then the shots start coming even faster, but there's a couple we do want to talk about. Um, oh, the first boy. is Elrond bent over a rock with what looks like a lot of activity behind him. I can't tell if it's an action sequence, um, but honestly, um, the face that fucking uh, Elrond's making here reminds me out of something out of like an Avengers movie more so than anything out of the yeah. Legendarium. So I know you have thoughts about this. I think we're going to agree on this at least. <laughs> and so, okay. So first I want to come to Robert Arameo's defense. Uh, he's the actor playing Elrond. Uh, I quite liked him in Game of Thrones. Uh, I thought he did a, an immense job stepping into the uh, impossible job of filling Sean Bean's uh, shoes. Uh, and I think he did quite well at that. Um, I'm also like not super opposed to like twinky, young-looking Elrond. Like Elrond uh, in the Silmarillion is literally a baby the whole way through. So like, okay, we get to the teenager phase. That's fine. Uh, what I am fucked off by uh, is I think I think I'm up to three here. Uh, the hair what 2012 skater boy ass bullshit is that? Uh, 
Number two, uh, the cheap looking prop in his hands, the cheap looking costume that he's wearing. Uh, I think the I think the like feather elements are meant to be a reference to his mother Elwing, who was literally turned into a swan. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe not. Who knows? Uh, the third thing is they have described Elrond. The showrunners have described Elrond in that Vanity Fair piece as uh, politically ambitious, uh, which is fucking laughable um, and here's why it's fucking laughable um in middle earth in the second age uh elves uh were colonizing middle earth they were getting uh, high on their horses and also high on their own supply um, and naming themselves kings constantly literally every motherfucker who was an elf and a man in middle earth was a king in some way or another and elrond goes to Amladris, uh rivendell sets up his little uh fiefdom realm there and does not name himself king he would have every right to name himself king, but he chooses the title Lord instead. Um, and like this, okay, this 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 may not seem significant, but it is significant because he's from, he's a Finway, and uh, so his, he is like family-wise absolutely fucked in terms of like uh, being surrounded by people who are like power hungry and narcissistic and would do anything to, to uh, put themselves, promote themselves at cost to everyone else. Uh, and uh, he, he is also part of this kind of first generation of elves to hit Middle Earth who really could claim whatever title they wanted to in Middle Earth, and the fact that Elrond doesn't is significant. The fact that Elrond is only ever the Lord of Rivendell um, is 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 a statement of character, intense character about Elrond and who he is and what his values are. Uh, he never does any political maneuvering uh, at all, ever, um, and there is pretty much nothing in any text where he shows up to indicate that he is politically ambitious. The only way you would get come to the conclusion that Elrond is politically ambitious is if you are not thinking about what these titles actually mean in context, e.g. Lord versus King, or you're just desperate to throw some like hackneyed fucking melodrama into the show and be like, all right, this is the Medici's now and Elrond's about to do a whole bunch of backstabbing because we need to do our own clone of the Red Wedding. Um, and I suspect that that's where that's going and it sucks and it's just, it's not Elrond. It really isn't. Um, and it like, that is the one thing I get kind of upset by because I think Elrond's story in the books, which we've talked about on this podcast before, is immensely compelling. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a story fundamentally about overcoming, like, like overcoming the kind of shit psychological digs of having a family who doesn't necessarily treat you very well and a family who is like kind of narcissistic and, and uncaring uh, to become someone who cares deeply and who's focused on healing and who's focused on making the, you know, loving all the things that grow and are not barren essentially to, to steal from Tolkien. Um, and I worry that they are going to take a character who is all about that and turn it into something unrecognizable. Yeah, I really recommend going back to our 10th episode, uh, Many Meetings, where we go to Rivendell and meet Elrond for the first time properly, and all the work Emily did in detailing his history and the history of Imladris and how it was set up as a refuge, um, not as him trying to set up his own little fiefdom um, to start you know, some kind of political conquest. And uh, like you said, I think this is them trying to airlift politics from Game of Thrones into Lord of the Rings. Um, and I know Game of Thrones... Uh, like we talked about with Emmett, like there's this false conception that Game of Thrones added all these political layers. Um, and you've done a great job throughout the co um, coverage of the movie so far of talking about how, yes, there are legitimate politics in Tolkien's Legendarium, whether they don't come through in the movies or they're just more subtle or just 
they're not politics in the same way that George Martin's, you know, politics in A Song of Ice and Fire is. It's still there. And this definitely feels something that's not of a piece with everything we've already discussed about Alron, um, his character and him setting up Rivendell and all that. So um, this this is a nit I am also picking with you. Um, so I definitely <laughs> feel that. And I'll also second your love for uh, Robert Arameo. Not love, but he did do a great job um, with his small role in Game of Thrones. So good for him there. Um, Moving on, the next we see um, the dwarf princess Disa, um, who seems to be singing or yelling. It looks like she's singing, um, based on what I assume people look like when they're singing. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, I don't really have anything to say about this shot. I think we get another shot of her later, or maybe I'm just thinking of the character poster. But um, I believe she is technically an invention for the show. Is that correct? Yeah. So there's a lot of weirdness around this. Um, so she is invented for the show the only dwarf woman we have any name for which i think i mentioned in the gimli episode is uh Dees. um and uh she is the uh she is a mother to one of the generation of the lord of the rings slash hobbit era dwarves so she is not at all present here and why i suspect they've done rightly or wrongly i, I feel at this point slightly wrongly uh based on the execution i've seen so far is they've wanted to introduce a dwarf woman character they've stolen her right to have a beard which sucks uh, and then, uh, you know, kind of taking the Disa name uh, so as not to kind of stray too far from like the given names and kind of keep in, in tone uh, with uh, with the other uh, Duaro names that we have. Uh, uh, we're going to get into some uh, more of the politics here and why I'm intensely skeptical of how they've handled some of this stuff later. But one of the things I would like to point out is that they've chemically straightened her hair or her wig or given her a straightened wig before curling it, which is, again, a little weird. Uh, there's definitely some racial politics. Like, I, I should be clear, there is like an intense racial politic surrounding black women's hair. Um, and and that has been true since uh, the dawn of the Colombian exchange. Um, it is not like looking too far or looking to be offended to say that um, black women's hair is politicized. Um, and like in particular, um, the straightening of black women's hair, um, particularly by like white production companies, like white owned, white operated production companies uh, in, a, in a film or a, a TV series that uh, uses incredibly like um, ang ang pseudo Anglo-Saxon aesthetics is something that is inherently political and should be mentioned um, and does kind of make my heart clench a bit because it makes me worry about what the overall racial politics of the show are going to be. Anyways, um, oh, I should also mention that um, Sofia Nonvere is uh, the actor who has been attacked most viscerally uh, by uh, racists, uh, and it's just like really fucking brilliant and cool that like Amazon have said absolutely nothing in her defense uh, and really just apparently done absolutely nothing to support her, uh, and it it sucks, and I think it's a a really unfortunate side effect of this. Uh, uh, well, cruelty in the entertainment industry, really. Yeah, it feels of a piece with what happened over at Disney. Again, Disney and Amazon, two great companies, uh, where um, basically the entire cast of the Star Wars sequel trilogies, and I'm specifically thinking of, um, God, I'm going to say her character name, uh, Daisy Ridley, um, Kelly Marie Tran, and John Boyega were basically all, to varying extents, driven off of social media. 
um, for daring to not be, you know, a white man in a Star War. And uh, basically nothing, nothing at all whatsoever from Disney, from, um, I can't, I don't, I don't know for sure from Lucasfilm, but it definitely did not feel like a concerted response to those negative voices. Whereas the minute that Chris Pratt was kind of thrown under the bus for being kind of just a shitty dude, um, not even some kind of like great transgression, they got fucking Robert Downey Jr. and Tom Holland and anyone who's, you know, worth anything in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to like voice video and put out tweets and put out articles about how, hey, actually, Chris Pratt's a great guy. You should give him a chance. And I'm like, actually, he sucks. And why does he get this kind of grace, but um, not the people who actually need um, that kind of stuff in a moment like this? So um, again, not shocking, but um, it just sucks. And it should make you kind of feel shitty about it, too. Um, I'm not endorsing you feel like shit, but these aren't things that should make you feel good about a production of a piece of work. Um, Yeah, yeah, big agree. Uh, we get another shot of Galadriel on a boat. This time it's daytime. It's a raft. We get a little bit more of a close up on her. It looks like she or possibly the human Halbrand that's with her is lowering the hood that's over her. So you can see more of her blonde hair. Um, no thoughts from me on this. Did, was there anything you wanted to say? No, I, I think if they uh, force a, a romance with this Halbrand guy instead of with Kelborn, I will riot. Um, boring people write. <laughs> Um, next we get what looks like to be a continuation of, um, pot, that comet scene or whatever that fiery streak is through the sky. I'm, I'll try to stop calling it a comet. Um, uh, but it looks like there was someone either in or near whatever that was. And there's a big fire and there's someone nearby that's trying to pull them out. Um, again, I don't really have any context for what this might be. Uh, I'll throw it to you if you have any possible thoughts. Not a clue. <laughs> Not <Okay>. a clue. <laughs> Um, the action keeps coming. We get a group of dwarves that are breaking a rock. This might be something similar to like laying the first stone for Moria. Um, no real other context there. Um, we get a shot of Aaron Deer, the Sylvan elf we talked about earlier, flying through the air with an axe. Um, super CGI, though, you know, I like elves doing crazy stuff. So hopefully this is better when we get to the actual show. Um, and then we got a shot that um, I know you have a lot of thoughts about. It's um, It looks like the elves at war with orcs. Um, it looks like a little bit of that first scene we get in the fellowship of the ring with the battle at Mount doom, but shot so that it looks like everything else that, you know, that comes out in the year 2022 or whatever, which is to say it looks a lot shittier. Um, and I know you have some thoughts about the costuming and hair here as well. Yep. Uh, <laughs> not great, Bob, uh, looks, looks awful. Uh, and, and I think one of the things, um, that, um, maybe I should have mentioned at the top is that uh, like you are right and that the aesthetics of this are probably going to be uh, an olive branch of sorts to the Peter Jackson films. Um, And beyond uh, me finding that kind of aesthetic trend boring. And the other reason why they never should have done it is because it gives an immediate point of comparison. Um, And they already knew that they were going to get compared to Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. So why would you make it look so similar when you knew you were going to fall short? Amazon inevitably knew that they were going to be cheap motherfuckers about this production and they knew they were not going to get the best craftsmanship out of this and they knew they weren't going to make it look good. So why would you score such a massive own goal by making it look so similar? Do something totally different. So we are all visually then interested in what's going on in these changes and not thinking to compare it immediately to Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. 
Instead, they've done this, and now we're all looking at this and thinking, well, this looks quite a bit more dog shit than the Peter Jackson versions. Why would you, why, like, why, why would you score that on goal? Um, and, and, like, uh, I think it also kind of speaks to me to, like, the lack of, like, creative innovation, because obviously for a lot of these major uh, battles, uh, battle scenes, the Battle of the Last Alliance and, uh, uh, or the disaster, uh, Moranin in, uh, in Fellowship of the Ring, um, Peter Jackson and Weta Workshop went and created a, an entire new way of handling uh, computer graphics in uh, cinema. Uh, they went away and they created these these massive, incredible engines uh, to really make sure that what they were putting on screen looked great. Um, and it took a lot of work and it took a lot of risk and it took a lot of creative energy. Um, and they were willing to do it because they were committed to the project of Lord of the Rings. And Amazon, it seems, uh, just won't. It just won't. Uh, and, you know, if you're if you're gonna, if you're not going to be creative, fine, don't be creative. Uh, but don't be uncreative in a way that uh, immediately makes us all compare you to something that is more creative and better done. Yeah, no. Uh, listen to that uh, book of Boba Fett showrunners. Uh, <laughs> but also, um, I, I guess my hope is that a lot of these things based on the factoid I mentioned earlier, that a lot of the stuff we see here is from very early on in the first episode or two, is that some of the stuff is maybe more pastiche or set like these aren't like i hope this is not what the big set piece of the season at like episode eight or whatever ends on um maybe it's more like the mount doom prologue where um these are just quick shots and hopefully the actual battles whatever battles they may have are realized a little better and you know just better um i think i had the right word there first of all so yeah um, um i also kind of just want to like pick up on this a bit because like i, I like i think i think um it it, it speaks volumes to your character that like you are this optimistic and like, I wish I were like that cheerful and, and nice and about the world. Um, but I think like trailers are meant to be, and I know, you know, we caveated this with like the star Wars trailer was dog shit, but like trailers are meant to be a, a sizzle reel of all that is good about your show. And they are meant to get people in the door. They are selling a product. Um, and, uh, it is really meant to be the best of the best and, and the highlight reel. Um, and, uh, it worries me how much of the coverage of the trailer, not like, not just from, like you and I, but like from everywhere has to be, oh, well, it, you know, it looks bad now, but maybe it'll be better when it's actually out because that's not really the purpose of a trailer. And if this was anything but Amazon and anything but Lord of the Rings, uh, nobody would like give it that kind of grace. Um, and like, I think like you are doing it from like an, like an optimist point of view and like a, a place of genuine goodness. Um, but I think a lot of people are doing it because like, there's this kind of like rank deference to the content churn and just like, this is the only slop we're ever going to get. So we have to find a way to like cope with it. And, and I think like that is like a not ideal way of looking at it. Like this should have been what they could produce at their best. And, uh, it appears that if, if, if that is true, if this is what they are uh, producing at their best, then we're fucked. Um, and if it isn't, then, uh, then they need to learn how to do better advertising and not, uh, be, uh, frankly, like so entitled to the, to the audience that unfortunately they do have captured already, but you know, there it is. Yeah. I will say that, um, my optimism is earnest. Um, but I think that's more of just who I am as opposed to anything related to what we're seeing. Um, I'm always very much a, you know, hope for the best and make do with what you get kind of person. <laughs> um, so we'll see. And I've basically the only reason I'm not up in arms one way or another, like super excited, screaming about how excited I am about the show or down on it is just, 
I exhausted myself during the teen years of this uh, century um, because I was all about this stuff with every Game of Thrones trailer, every Marvel trailer, looking at every fucking screenshot to figure out whether Glup Shido is going to uh, show up in this movie <laughs> or not. Um, so it's just like, I, that's why I, a lot of my optimism might also just be laziness or fatigue from having um, been like this for a long time. Um, and I'm probably a worse person for it. <laughs> so, um, We'll just leave it at that. But yeah, um, you know, I, I to be fair, I am actually excited to cover the show, um, yeah. you know, with you guys, with Emily, um, just because I think we can have some really fascinating discussions regardless of how good or bad it might be. Um, but, you know, it, it's probably good that me and Emily kind of have different approaches um, Two different sized hands, uh, so to speak, which will be my clumsy segue into the last shot of the trailer, <laughs> which I feel bad that I mentioned I liked the shot earlier because I know Emily has some issues with it. But um, I think it's basically it's a giant hand holding a small hand. And I think you're just supposed to immediately think this is like Gandalf and Frodo, even though it's most <clears throat> most certainly not. Um, I think that's exactly the kind of thing that they're trying to evoke here. I'm such a dumbass. I was like, oh, yeah, it's definitely just a kid. No, you're right. Like, it is definitely meant to be like a hobbit. <laughs> like, you are spot on. My brain was just like, yeah, baby hands. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not like, there's nothing in here, like, content-wise that I'm deeply offended by. I'm just annoyed that you can see the elastic on the uh, sleeve and you can see a whole bunch of the the machine uh, hemming, uh, which is, again, just craftsmanship not done well. Uh you know, who gives a fuck what I think? Like I sit here and podcast, I am not working on a multi-billion dollar uh, TV adaptation. I am not a scholar, but you know, it sucks to see that sort of stuff that like I could feasibly do in my, my house uh, to the same standard in a show that has way more money and way more expertise allegedly at their disposal than what my dumb ass has. With that, why don't we just transition into a little bit of open discussion um, and we'll kind of try to wrap up the episode because I <laughs> I initially envisioned this episode as me and Emily having a light week where we didn't have to put together a bunch of notes and we can kind of relax before we, you know, speed to the end of fellowship. And it turns out this is probably going to be our longest episode yet. <laughs> Classic. Um, that said, um, we, I want to talk a little bit about the diversity of the cast. Um, both in this show and how we talk about it broadly. Um, I'll just start with the very basics of this is that, you know, if you're mad about people of color or woman characters in your, you know, blockbuster art, you know, you're just wrong. Um, and I, I think the most important thing to me is, and maybe people don't like this argument, but ultimately it's, it's fiction. It's fake. Um, those things can kind of be bent. Um, but then the only other thing I'll throw in there is that we should also be, a little bit wary of how much value we put in representation in terms of it coming from big corporate art or whether, yes, they want you to buy in because they have people that look like you in something, but what are the values that that character or the piece of you know art actually holds? Um, because a lot of times it's kind of like that gay cop thing I talked about with Disney <laughs> is like they want you to see yourself in this because here's a queer character in this, you know, Marvel or Star Wars universe, but then they're making them a cop. And what does that mean? What does what does being a cop mean for the queer existence? You know, it's usually deleterious towards it. Um, so you always have to be just you. 
the discussion of representation and skin tone or, you know, whether it's, you know, sexual representation, gender representation, you have to think of it beyond just the aesthetic, but what other values are they a part of in the network of what constitutes that art? And then the last thing I'll add is that we also have to be wary of having these cultural conversations about representation. This is something that right-wingers want us to talk about and wasting our breath on and writing the same piece we've been writing for 20 years about how it's okay to have, you know, black people or brown people in your fictional stories. Um, Those people are never going to go away. Um, And I understand that some of that needs to at least be confronted and not just completely ignored because we've seen, especially at least in the U.S., how easy it is for bad thinking to just poison every other institution that exists. Um, But we have to realize that part of their goal is to create this inert sensation where we keep having this conversation about representation in fiction. So we can't move on to actually more material conversations about how to help these communities that we're so eager to represent, but not actually provide material aid for. Um, So I, so while I'm all for, you know, there are a lot of people that are ecstatic about the um, representation that's visible in the show already. And absolutely, you should be. That's great. And if that makes you feel something special inside, that's not us trying to take it away from you. But I think we have to understand that it has been politicized to a point where um, talking about it in a certain way just kind of keeps the conversation ongoing and prevents us from moving forward. Um, I feel like I've talked myself in circles enough around that. So I'll hand it off to Emily, who has much more well-curated thoughts on the matter. Yeah, let's see how quickly I uh, yeah make an ass of myself here. Um, so I think you are correct on the like uh, ongoing and slightly frustrating churn of like uh, racist saying things that are obviously insane and then the liberal kind of media circuit uh, spinning themselves up and not doing anything practical to be like, oh, but we couldn't ever think that and we disagree and we're going to publish 7 million pieces patting ourselves on the back. Uh, I think like you are correct. That is uh, a problem. Um, but one of the things I kind of want to like get into slightly more um, in terms of like uh, the, this question of like representation in media is that um, the color blind approach to casting, I think, is something that doesn't work um and like okay here we go and i'm gonna have to read off of like the the notes that i carefully like uh, wrote out and edited so that i don't say anything uh too batch it so if a fictional world exists where all races are equal to one another then by virtue of our world being so drastically different to that that is going to be a major factor of that fictional world in other words something that cannot and should not be ignored Short of having a fictional world like that, however, we as the audience are always going to bring our prejudices into an artistic experience, and it's incumbent upon artists to engage with that pragmatically, not in the sort of racially agnostic liberal colorblindness way that is so popular right now. Which is to say, though socially constructed, race is a very real vector of experience for, dare I say it, a majority of people in the world. Whether it's fair or not, people who are not white are going to be politicized. It is, therefore, a much smarter and more politically coherent idea to engage with what that racialization and politicization means. I want to mention really quick one film series that I think handles this well, which is surprisingly The Hunger Games. Um, I will launch my defense of The Hunger Games uh, at a different point. But one of the incredible things about the film series, at least, is that they do show an incredibly diverse array of characters and actors without pretending that race doesn't exist. 
There are districts in the world of the Hunger Games that are majority black, and the films play up the Ferguson-inspired aesthetics to point out how, even under a brutalizing dictatorship, black and brown people are still treated differently and worse than white people. They don't elide the very real issue of race in service of a colorblind casting that implicitly makes the case that under dystopia, racism somehow wouldn't exist. They cast a large number of non-white actors and seriously engage with what the parameters of race are. Now, does that mean that I think anytime a black or brown person is cast in a movie or TV show, their role should be to perform racialized suffering? No. But it does mean that I think storytellers need to get real with themselves about race. Tolkien obviously is terrible at this and also dead, but this show is already deviating immensely from what Tolkien wrote, so he's almost orthogonal to this point. Instead, I want to talk about the decision to cast colorblindly here and why I think this is actually a problem. For starters, colorblind or racially agnostic casting assumes that it is possible to cast actors independently of their race. I would argue that this is basically a pipe dream. It also assumes that audiences will engage with the characters over their perception of the actors, again, a pipe dream. Here are my immediate concerns. I think it's a problem that one of the most vis- visible non-white cast members so far, Sonvia Nomvede, was cast as Princess of Casa Doom. Setting aside my anger at the lack of bearded dwarf ladies, there's something that sticks in my craw about casting a black woman to be the face of Moria, the black chasm, the civilization that awoke a servant of the devil, a race that was predicated on unsavory anti-Semitic stereotypes that are, unsurprisingly, often wielded against black people. I'm thinking here of the stereotypes surrounding criminality and greed in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s in regard to hip-hop culture and gang warfare. Who knows, maybe the showrunners will treat her and her storyline with respect and grace, but I sort of doubt it given everything else I've seen. I also want to point out that Arandir, as played by Esmael uh, uh, Cordova Cruz, um, is a sylvan elf, not a high elf, and sylvan elves are explicitly noted in canon as, quote, less wise and more violent than the Noldor elves. So I'm really not loving that the one black elf is a sylvan elf to be quite honest with you all. I also feel like the popcorn approach to casting non-white actors, by taking that route, you're actually making them increasingly vulnerable to what was an inevitable avalanche of far-right hatred. I would much rather have seen a racially conscious casting choices that didn't isolate individual actors. Or, in other words, make all the elves black, you fucking cowards. Make the men Arabs. Subvert racial expectations. We know... That white supremacist propaganda tells us that black people are uncouth, uncultured, whatever. Fine. Make all the elves in this show, the fairest and wisest beings of Middle Earth, black. We've seen in Peter Jackson's films what ugly orientalist stereotypes look like when casting, for example, the Haradrim and the Easterlings. Fuck that noise. Aragorn's ancestors are Arabs now. The uncivilized, heretical Haradrim posh white Englanders, the mystical and warlike Easterlings, the fucking French. I don't care. Basically, my point is, we always knew morons were going to get mad about this shit, but that doesn't mean it had to be handled in the dumbest way possible. And in fact, I think there were ways to handle this that were not only aware of reality, but add narrative value to the story by engaging with the world we actually live in. 
Anyways, I'm going to take my breath there, but this is really my thing, and I think it is going to be a, a massive goddamn shame that the showrunners are going to be treated with all of this grace and uh, a glorification by liberals as this sort of knee-jerk reaction to the far-right and, and Nazis who should rightly, obviously, be resisted. But there's not going to be any sort of critical engagement with the fact that I think these guys bollocks this up. I think they put their uh, non-way actors in a really horrific position, and I don't think that it had to be this way. They just did it because they are fucking lazy and they had something to push no i appreciate you voicing that um i think that's a very good point and we should keep that in mind um please you know for whatever me and emily say don't feel like we are prescribing how you should feel about any of this stuff um because there was there was a lot of elation about seeing people and, you know, there is a lot of diversity in the Lord of the Rings fandom. I hate using the word, but that's what it is, a fandom um, that we're just thrilled to see these characters. And I, I don't disagree with Emily. It's just, I don't have this. I, I don't think of Sylvan elves, you know, they're just all elves to me. Cause that's what the films taught me. Um, and, but I think like, you know, some of the concerns she brought up are absolutely on point and we should keep them in mind. Um, I, I just hope we didn't sour your decision to watch or enjoy the show <laughs> during the course of this episode. Um, but no, I mean, that's what, that's why we're doing this. We're doing this to have thoughtful conversations that pretty much no one else is really trying to have about these books, these movies, this show now. Um, so that's, that's what we're here for. Um, we have a lot of like factoids about other stuff, like when the show's coming out, September 2nd, there's eight episodes, but I don't know if there's anything else you specifically really want to touch on at this point, uh, Emily. Um, I, okay. Uh, yes, uh, I do. Uh, Peter Mullen has been cast in this. Uh, um, Peter Mullen is, uh, known to the world through Westworld. Yeah. Westworld. Uh, Peter Mullen is known, uh, in, in my household, uh, for his phenomenal turn in the, uh, musical about the city of Edinburgh using the proclaimers music called sunshine on Leith, which also stars a, a guy actor, not in Lord of the Rings, who's mentioned an awful lot on this podcast, uh, George Mackay. Um, and if you have, uh, 90 minutes out of your day, uh, go watch, uh, sunshine on Leith uh, is brilliant. Proclaimers are obviously brilliant. Uh, it's got lots of beautiful shots of Edinburgh. I cry whenever I watch it because it's great. Uh, and uh, my partner Connor will be incredibly mad if I don't mention that Billy Boyd uh, was actually in a production of Sunshine on Leith uh, that Connor got to go see. Um, but it's a wonderful uh, musical and Peter Mullen does in fact sing in it. Uh, so before he plays whatever edgy, gruff character he's inevitably going to play in this, uh, go see him uh, sing into his wife, uh, sing in Proclaimers songs to his wife and uh sunshine on leaf uh, it's well worth your time <laughs> and then just one thing i'll add is that he is not a writer for this show but he's a consultant for the writing team and that is brian cogman who was heavily involved with the writer's room over at game of thrones i will say his presence like him specifically from that writing team actually gives me a little bit of hope because um, in my opinion, the two best episodes of the entire series were written by Brian Cogman. And both of those episodes were the ones that were most real to the actual lore as laid down by George R.R. R. Martin. Um, and he was kind of the lore master of Game of Thrones. I don't think he is 
the lore master of whatever is going on with this show, but he is someone who actually, he was a good and stabilizing force with the Game of Thrones writing team. Um, so I'm just hoping that he's able to bring some of that as well. And then another one of the lead writers is Jennifer Hutchinson, who I don't really know anything about her specifically, but her two credits to her name are Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Um, and, you know, everyone apparently loves Breaking Bad. I don't think I have to say anything there, but I actually think Better Call Saul is even better. Um, I think it's probably the best show on TV that's still running. Uh, so I, th those are at least things that give me some encouragement. It's one of those things where ultimately where I think the show I think it might be a good TV show and then where it will be in terms of being a Lord of the Rings show or something as in terms of addressing Tolkien's legendarium or adapting it. Like, I think it'll be like a well-written show for TV. What it does in terms of being successful as an entry into an adaptation of the legendarium is I think where I'm iffier about it. Um, just from a writing standpoint, I know we've talked a lot about costuming and effects that don't look that great. And I'm not, not trying to say those things will be good either. Um, but I think those are a couple of things that give me some level of optimism or at least hope, uh, perhaps a fool's hope uh, in the end, but uh, <laughs> it is what it is. So if there's nothing else, um, we will cut it off there for today. We skipped a lot of our formality so we can bring you our freshest and hottest takes. And boy, <laughs> did we. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, which oh, no. I'm sorry, um, <laughs> but I highly, highly recommend you go back and listen to our previous episodes as we are just about to wrap Fellowship of the Ring in the coming weeks. Um, we're nearly 20 episodes or will be once we wrap this first movie. And I promise you, we are generally very much more positive in our regular episodes. <laughs> Um, and if you like to, if you like what you hear, you can support us and help us expand our programming. Maybe even bribe us into more generous takes uh, by signing up for my Patreon at <laughs> Patreon.com/slash/NuclearBomb. If you pledge a thousand dollars, we will say nothing but nice things about the show. Um, but anyways, I've been Manu, um, also known as Nuclear Bomb. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram at that handle, as well as on Patreon at Nuclear Bomb. And I've been Emily, and you can find me saying somehow even more deranged things about this show at JRR Tweeting on Twitter. Uh, toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.